Biggest one I see most often is one I also see an analog in Web3, which is blockchain fixes this. Everything can be fixed with AI. You know, our economy is going to be so much better with AI. Everything is going to be, you know, fixed and better. It's, it's, it's just, it just makes things more complex. It's, it, it does simplify some things. It definitely will be orders of magnitude of improvement and efficiencies in, in areas. But I think the first thing is don't make the assumption that everything is going to get better because you just did AI with it. Right? Like that's the, the, everything's a, a nail if you're holding a hammer, right? <laughs> Hello and welcome to Banking on Disruption. I'm Fred Cavenna. As always, thanks and gratitude to our regular listeners. And a hearty welcome to those of you who are tuning in for the first time. We have another awesome guest on deck for Episode 7, John Schuler. John's been working with clients designing and developing artificial intelligence and computer vision solutions for the better part of his career. In an age where everyone on LinkedIn and Twitter is claiming to be an AI expert, John is the real deal. If you've been wondering what exactly AI is how it works, and what moves you should be making now, you tuned into the right show. After the interview in our Quick Take segment, Dana and I will be discussing more AI news with Salesforce's new XGen7B LLM, how one company is using biometric data and AI to predict hit songs, the seemingly successful launch of Meta's Threads platform, and the just-announced Salesforce price increases. While you're listening to this podcast, why not take a moment to follow us on LinkedIn at the Banking on Disruption podcast, and on Instagram at, at Banking on Disruption. Now sit back and strap in, because our show is coming to you right now. And welcome back. On this episode, Dane and I are excited to welcome John Schuler. John specializes in building great digital products to drive revenue or generate value. For the past several years, John's been working almost exclusively with emerging tech such as AI, computer vision, and Web3. In his work, John partners with some of the largest companies in the world, as well as several bootstrap startups. When not working with bleeding-edge technology, John explores interests from economics, ancient history, philosophy, jazz, physics, photography, and spending time with family, hiking, or cooking. Now, John, I'm really excited to have you on today. Thanks so much for joining us. You know, obviously, the topics of generative AI and large language models have been super popular and even mainstream in the last six months. Dana and I have spent a fair amount of time talking about it around the edges. We really thought it would be great for our audience to hear from a real expert who's been doing deep work in AI for the last several years, you know, before everyone became a LinkedIn AI expert. So in that vein, I wanted to start off pretty basic. What is artificial intelligence and how does it work? Well, thank you again for having me on. It's great to be here. Um, I also wanted to say before we get started, yours, y'all's podcast name is amazing. Uh, I love the <laughs> banking on disruption. It's, it's really great. Um, so I'm going to go like, I'm going to change the aperture a few times in, in the answer I'll give. So, you know, the definition of artificial intelligence is, is one that's changed, I think, even in the time period I've been working with it. So the first foray I had into it um, really in earnest was in 2015. Uh, working with uh, a particular AI called Psych, C-Y-C. Uh, you can look mm -hmm. it up on Wikipedia. It's, it's quite interesting. It's, it's like a very old DOD spinoff um, of uh, an artificial intelligence that is was really brutal to work with. But the definition then was quite different than it is now. So I'll, I'll give you what it is now, which is essentially any type of task that a human typically does, um, if it's done now by a computer program or a machine, uh, that is 
essentially what artificial intelligence is, which means it's really broad. At its core, artificial intelligence is machine learning, which once again is kind of a nebulous term. What machine learning essentially is, is using pattern recognition to iterate. So they kind of, I don't know if y'all remember calculus at all or Newton uh, or any I of that stuff. I love calculus. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or if you remember, uh, or anyone who's in the audience that might be um, in software development, agile, you talk about iterations, which just means mm-hmm. you just keep doing something over and over again. So, you know, you first bake a cake, it's not that great. You keep baking it over and over and over again, and you get better at it. Those are iterations, right? Uh, or iterables. Um, and machine learning is just, I'm going to give you a set, I'm going to give you the impersonal unconscious uh, computer, uh, a set of data. And I'm going to say, go over this a bunch of times start recognizing patterns. And then when I give you new data that looks like what I gave you before, apply what you've quote unquote learned, the patterns you've formed from doing this a bunch of times to the new data and see what you come up with. So I always say like, uh, you know, computer graphics, GPUs is what we run a lot of these on now. That all came from gaming, right? So like Unreal Tournament, Unreal Engine, all of that stuff is actually the basis for the hardware that we now run these models on, which I won't, that's, you know, a little tangential, I won't get into it, but that's just to set up most of the machine learning for most of the years up until essentially recently that it's become more in the zeitgeist. Um, A lot of it came from marketing. Um, And what they did in marketing, this is kind of the whole how social media got to be so rich, is they have all this user, user data, they feed all this user data into a machine and they say, hey, find connections and patterns with this. And then the connections and patterns they would find is segmentations of users, essentially. And then this is how you can really quickly target people. And you could say like, oh, hey, based off of what we've seen in this massive amount of data, this person would, would uh, react very well to rock climbing, right? Like they, they might be in the same cohort of people at rock climb. And then the interesting thing and what makes this so quickly to be able to improve itself, because improving is a big part of machine learning, is you can serve an ad. And if the ad doesn't do anything, and it doesn't do anything to that cohort of people enough times, you can say, oh, that didn't improve anything. Feed that data back in and say, get better at it. Now, that isn't necessarily a task that humans were doing before. We weren't really segmenting people in massive right. scale, right? Um, so that was still considered machine learning. Now we're getting into the part of you know artificial intelligence, um, which could be traffic. So I have a lot of uh, experience in computer vision. So uh, traffic monitoring or traffic studies or things like that. Being able to see, oh, these many cars go through. This or many of them are trucks that are that seem to be heavy loaded. Um, this is the the typical load on this this street corner. Um, is stuff that takes a lot of time and traditionally takes a lot of money. You can now just set up an iPhone camera, essentially record a bunch of video, and then run a model over it and say, tell me how many cars, how many trucks, you know, came through this you know, this uh, particular area. So that would be you know artificial intelligence, um, or what we're seeing now, which is you know, take this marketing copy and give me, you know, a tweet for it, right? That's uh, when you're starting to get into the artificial intelligence side of things where it's uh, replacing or augmenting tasks that typically were done with humans. Um, And there's a, you know, now we're kind of getting into the the gray area between machine learning, artificial intelligence and deep learning, because deep learning is another segment, but I'll take a, take a breath and get, grab some coffee before uh, we see where we want to go next. So John, what are some of the business use cases of AI today? How is AI helping companies improve processes or experiences? I change the aperture and then come back to that question again. Um, I like this professor Robin Hansen a lot. He wrote this book, The Age of M, 
He also wrote this book, I think, about every day called The Elephant in the Brain, but that's another story. Um, he says that he has this really pithy response to, to where AI is going and how it's advancing. Um, and essentially, think of just a, a vertical, you know, exponential rise, right? So everything kind of like goes flat a little bit and then it starts picking up, right? That's kind of where we are with the level of complexity that AI can adopt, right? So in the beginning, you get all this growth and AI can just start chomping away at these tasks, right? Some of them is because it's it's well suited for it, like the marketing example, right? So like being able to take all this data, it's, it's just better suited for a machine than it even is a human. I mean, a human couldn't really do that, especially couldn't do it at scale. Uh, the only human I can think of that did something like that was Alan Greenspan. And he, was, he, he did it only for certain industries and he did it rather intuitively, right? Um, he wasn't actually ingesting massive amounts of data to, to find the intuition he had it. So what you're seeing AI do in the beginning was doing tasks that were rather simple, right? Um, so like facial recognition, um, we as people can recognize people's faces really easily. And we take that for granted. Um, the really fascinating thing to me when I started getting into computer vision that blew my mind is one of the most complex geometric shapes in all of nature is a human face. Um, and we don't even realize that, but the contours, the way that it, uh, the symmetry of it, um, the, the Z of it, all of those different things it's really well suited for a computer to be able to read it and see it, right? So that's why facial recognition was one of the first really big examples of AI. Um, then it kind of starts getting harder and harder and harder, right? So you started seeing radiology, um, which you haven't really started seeing it in force. I think you will, as, as far as a use case, I think radiology is one that is amazing. I think it was 2018, uh, The Economist had this awesome article um, explaining how a radiologist on its own, what his error rate was or their error rate was, versus with an AI uh, versus the AI alone. And the radiologist plus AI blew everything out of the water. It was near 100% um, at finding everything. So I think you're gonna start seeing more of that where it's highly complicated, but it still needs a human to do the error. And I think the reason for that is you're starting to see that the, the use cases for it are starting to bridge into this massive gap of complexity, right? So you're seeing LLMs come out. That's a really big, big one. Um, which I think LLMs is really only possible because of distributed computing and, and being able to use multiple GPUs at scale. Um, but regardless, you know, that use case is once again, I think one where it's still gonna need to be augmented by people. Um, so anything that's a simple repetitive task is perfect for AI right now. Absolutely perfect. Any use case you can think of in, if it's uh, double checking errors, and insurance to make sure that everything is, is coded properly, if it's to make sure everything is um, ready to go from one stage of a business to another stage of a business, you know, like mm -hmm. I can think of, you know, manufacturing or uh, insurance. It's amazing how those processes actually are similar. Like I've worked with Caterpillar as well as, you know, some of the largest insurance companies and the way things go from one stage of an organization to the other, even though it's heavy industrial equipment versus, you know, documents of, of someone's life insurance, it's actually quite similar because it has to go through all these uh, steps, right? Being able to catch error rates or catch opportunities between different things, um, I think is very well suited for AI right now. So, hey, there's a gap here, or there's a customer segment that's not getting seen or quality con quality control or quality insurance. Like this type of thing has a lot of errors. You know, um, I'm a big fan of Toyota. I'm a big fan of a lot of Japanese companies, but I'm a big fan of Toyota. And there's this hilarious story of this GM exec visiting a Toyota plant. And they said, Hey, where do you put all your lemons? And they're like, what? <laughs> like, where do you put all the cars that don't come off the line? Right. And the person like didn't understand. And over the course of time, this GM exec realized that the second they find an error with any car, 
they shut down the whole line, they pull that car off, they make sure it's not existing in any other cars. And then instead of putting in a lot to then refurbish, they take it to a lab and understand how did this happen? And then they change their whole manufacturing process, right? Anything that like that could happen is very well suited for AI. It could tell you much faster why this happened, you know, why it's going. Now the yeah. paradox of that is you have to have the data built in to give you that feedback, right? Which is once again, kind of the error that, that exponential rise in complexity going up. Um, but if it's anything involving large text analysis, spotting trends, um, spotting congruencies between different things. Um, I think the areas, the industries, you're going to see a lot of this. I think insurance is going to be completely revolutionized by this. I think Lemonade is probably going to lead the way in that. They've already been doing it, and now they have a lot more help with these LLMs that are coming out. Um, I think, once again, like smart manufacturing, automated manufacturing, um, made-to-order manufacturing, 3D printing, all of that, I think, is going to take a lot of advantage of this. Anything involving images, I think I'm a huge dark horse on computer vision. Um, I'm hugely biased to it too, but I'm aware. <laughs> of it. Um, but I think anything involving repetitive images, I think anything involving cars, anything involving like retail stores, even logistics too. I think supply chain and logistics is another thing that already is inherently such a data-rich environment. Connecting it to spot trends and things like that. Um, I think we're going to probably in the next few years, if I'm kind of looking into my crystal ball, have a huge chunk of AI infusing and augmenting to kind of help the productivity bend, especially with an aging workforce and whatnot. Um, I think that's what's going to happen. And then it's going to take a while for the next chunk. Um, and I'm stealing this from Robin Hansen because I think the the complexity of the use cases in which you can, can uh, support, I think is going to get harder. And I also think there needs to be a fundamental revolution in the way models are built, constructed, and, and what they're run on. I'm going to ask a, a two-parter here because the first part I want to go back to something that you mentioned in the middle of your response, which is GPUs. And the question is simply like, what is the deal with GPUs? I get asked all the time, uh, and I'm sure our audience is curious as well. You know, for the longest time, GPUs were an afterthought, and then they were kind of relegated to the domain of hardcore gamers. And then all of a sudden, a couple of years ago, it seems like everybody wants GPUs. NVIDIA just topped a trillion dollars in market cap. So what is it about GPUs and how they work that makes them important to developing AI models? I'll explain what deep learning is, and then I'll come back to it. Um, so I, I like graph paper. That's like what I write on in my notebook. Um, so you think just like the lines, like squares all the way through. And then if you have a stack of them together, it's, you can imagine like just kind of like a picture book. It's, it's just a big stack of, of graphs on top of each other in lines, right? Now imagine if each one of those corners of the graph, each of the corners of squares had a dot on it. Um, now we can call that a node, or we can call that a neuron, right? And then mm -hmm. if there's a way that the dots can interface each other going through the stack of paper. So imagine each dot on each of the pieces of paper connects to every single dot on the next piece of paper, so on and so on and so on and so on and so on. And so on. That's deep learning, that's a neural net, that's how they work. And what it is, is it's confidence scoring. So all AI, including what I was ex explaining before with um, machine learning is, is, is essentially confidence scoring, which is I'm going to put this through and then you tell me within 100% what you think, you as in the unconscious and personal AI, uh, think uh, how certain you are you're right. So if I go through and say, what's the segment of this person? Um, is this person good for the rock climbing? It'll say 40%, like, you know, maybe 
Fred, it'll give you like a, a certain score. And for me, it might give me a higher one because it knows that I like a lot of outdoor stuff, right? So it, it gives me a higher confidence score. Um, that's how deep learning works in essence, right? So an LLM, when it's going through and it's, you know, you can see it uh, creating like the word, the next word, the next word, the next word, and it's, it's transcribing all that. It's essentially giving itself a score each time to say, what's, what's the chance that this next word is the word I should pick, right? Mm -hmm. So that's how the models work. That's what a model is. Now, in order to run that, you need to run a lot of concurrent processing and you need it to be able to go through all of it. Cause that, that neural net, that uh, deep learning model I just described is essentially a database. It's essentially, the, the easiest way to, to think about it is that's a database um, that is trained and created based off of the data it was fed. And then it's able to map all of that data in this mathematical equation that equates to that graph I just described. So in order to really work through it, it needs to run a bunch of things concurrently. Now, what GPUs do is exactly that, right? So in order to run Unreal Engine, uh, or, you know, like, I don't know if y'all ever played Unreal Tournament like 20 years ago, uh, like <laughs> in order to run that, that was pretty much GPUs made that possible, right? right. Like graphics cards were a new thing back then. Um, and I remember trying to run it without a graphics card and it was just impossible. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> it, just like, it was like you had terrible dial-up internet. It was like crunchy. You know, you're just like jumping. Yeah, laggy, very laggy. Yeah, totally. And then if you had a GPU though, you can do that a lot better. Um, and it comes down to like, to the fundamental architecture of the chip, right? So if we think about electrons like a river, um, it can just, it just runs a river in multiple different directions and kind of fractals it out. So we can run a bunch of things at the same time concurrently. Um, so I'm actually in the market for a GPU right now. I have a data science rig I built below me right now. <laughs> um, and I, we should, uh, we should compare notes or maybe like in the show notes, like we can each put up like what we're thinking about for building a rig. I, I've got another friend of mine that just built one and like the, the, the graphic cards, number one, are so hard to find. And number two, like I remember the last time I built a rig, like I, I got a computer shopper magazine that was like three inches thick and flipped through looking for parts. And, and that tells you how long it's been. You know, that whole thing is so I'd, I'd love to hear what you're putting in that in that rig. Some of the best advice my wife gives me amazing advice and she gave me a really amazing advice for this. And she said, just pay somebody. And that's exactly what I would I would tell anybody. Just like if you if you're gonna spend it. the money to to build a rig, don't be the one that builds it. It's just so hard. You know what I mean? Like I grew up, you know, fixing all the cars that I had, and then the second I yeah. got a, a Mini Cooper, like you know, sported out, like top of the line, I looked under the hood and I was like, I'm not touching this thing because the amount that's changed since my you know '94 Ford Probe to this is just insane. You know, so <laughs> I would say that's the same with this. Like it's it's better just to, to know what you're looking for. Um, and to, to pay somebody else to do it. Um, but so really what the GPU just allows you to do is run multiple things concurrently. Um, there's other things that, like Google invented uh, tensor processing units, mm -hmm. which is just another way of running concurrent processing that's specifically for tensor units, which is essentially what I described um, in the graph paper analogy. Um, but I, I personally, I think there needs to be a, another iteration um, that's dedicated for this and, and it, you know, cryptocurrency, all of that cryptocurrency mining, the reason it's, um, you know, wants to be, you know, best run on the GPU is the same as, is the, the example with the, the models. It's just easier to do those, those calculations, easier to, uh, to do the cryptographic, you know, uh, keys and all of that that you need to do if you were able to run a bunch of things at once. So just, you'll get to the, the end 
a lot faster. 100%. And I love the illustration. I'm going to borrow that. I get asked a lot and I can go through the second half of the answer pretty quickly, but I love the the visual of thinking about the graph paper and thinking about the nodes. I'm I'm going to steal that moving Open forward. Source. Just, yeah. just FYI. Uh, so I promised a two-parter. The second thing, like, towards the end of your last answer, you mentioned that you know, you think we're going to have a little bit more evolution with where we are, and then there's going to be a break point. I, I tend to agree. I think people frequently get AI and AGI confused. And people are thinking, you know, when you, when you hear about a lot of the disaster predictions, they're thinking about AGI. And I personally don't think we get to AGI with any of the stuff that we have now. Like, there's not going to be a GPT-10 that's just going to, you know, be the Terminator. Uh, I think it's a fundamentally different technology that's going to get us to AGI whenever that happens. And that may not even be in my lifetime. What are your thoughts on that? Very bearish on it being a possibility. I'm very outspoken as far as like the, especially in my field, we've gotten into a lot of arguments about this. I find them very fun, <laughs> but other people don't. Um, like, I, you know, stealing from Robin Hansen again, like his whole book, The Age of M, which people, if they're really interested in AGI, which is artificial general intelligence, essentially being able to replicate human level intelligence. That's essentially what that means. Even though the way it's typically used is super intelligence. I like his description a lot. I like it the best, which is being able to have a model of a human brain. Um, and then you being able to use that and, and kind of put it on anything. Um, that's kind of his thought on, on when we'll be able to get to that is when we're able to do that. You're talking about like, I mean, we can say teraflops, which is like an enormously large amount of data of you know, multiple teraflops is what a human brain has. I would say it's even more than that. I mean, if, okay, like just kind of backing up again, I'm going to keep using the uh, analogy of changing the aperture. Um, <laughs> I like ancient history, right? Um, I like yep. uh, the Homeric poems. It wasn't until like around Socrates' time, and they were already over a thousand years old at that point, that they started being written down. And he actually, Socrates never wrote anything down. And he was really against writing things down because he thought it would make us dumber. And the reason is, is people would have the whole epic poem of the Odyssey or the Iliad memorized by heart. And then people would say like, hey, can you give me that scene again? That's this. And they would be able to do it, you know, or um, the, the Romans like Seneca and uh, um, several of the other ones. I can't think of his name off the top of my head, which is going to totally bother me. Uh, <laughs> they use this thing called the method of Loki, which is essentially like a mind palace. And they would create a visual um house in their head and then when they would touch like on the desk they would walk into a room and there would be an apple on the desk and they touch the apple on the desk and that would key them into being able to remember you know act three scene five of shakespeare right and they had all these different tricks that they would make so the amount of storage you have in your head is so immense like i was just hearing about oppenheimer and you know oppenheimer that movie's coming out he went to the netherlands for like a weekend and learned dutch you know, th there's so much that our brains are capable of that we don't even we're not even aware of. Right. Um, so to, to get to that level of intelligence, I think, is going to be incredibly difficult. I mean, we take so much for granted, like Elon Musk has been talking about self-driving cars for what is it like a decade now? And he yep. totally didn't realize, you know, like there's the iRobot example of you're about to skid off the road. You can hit an old lady or you can hit a kid, which do you choose? But it's, it's so much more subtle than that. You know, it's the 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 where in the road looks like there was a stop sign you know like an area a lane here or a stop lane here right. and to a computer to figure that out it's it's so hard because it's 
doing a different set of packet pattern recognition than we're used to. Um, so we're like, what is that a plastic bag that I can hit? Or is that a obstruction I need to avoid? Right. Or is that a shadow or is that a person? I mean, it's, yeah. it's insanely difficult. You haven't lived. I'm sure you have until you've gone to San Francisco and seen the queues of self-driving cars stuck mm-hmm. at a stop sign behind one that hasn't figured something out yet. Yeah, totally. Or like the Tesla with the behind a horse and buggy. Um, yeah. and I mean like, you know, like I have a lot of deer in my area, um, and right now isn't the time where you have to worry about male deer, but there is a time you have to worry about male deer are really aggressive. So I just kind of trained myself to always be worried about deer and I've got my <laughs> dog to respond to it, which is kind of fun. But last night I was taking her out at night and there was a bag moving and I thought it was a deer running at me. And it took me a second to like recognize, like, oh, no, no, it's just a bag, right? <laughs> but to get to computer to figure that out and to, to, to say like your intuition is wrong it's actually a bag, like, that's a difficult task. Um, so I think it's going to be a long time, multiple centuries before we get to something that is going to really trick us into thinking it's sentient, into thinking it's um, able to, to navigate in a, a regular situation where you just throw it in. You know, I mean, it's one thing to say, I'm going to throw you into the game of Go. You're not going to have any idea how to play Go or any idea how to play Mario. Figure out the rules from when I tell you you've done something wrong and then and make it through. The world doesn't really have all that many rules. And there's a right. lot of... Like, okay, English, I before E except after C. That rule is broken more often than it's actually in place, right? <laughs> so, all, And that's just one example. There's so many different um, spaces in the real world where what you would be you know, think of as, as normal isn't. And black swan events actually aren't necessarily that rare. It's just our time is is so small that we th- tend to think in. Um, so I think it's going to be a long time, unless the giant asterisk on this is if we figure out some fond- fundamental uptake in energy and able to just throw massive amounts of energy at something that we weren't able to do before. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's some type of new computer chip that is able to be, I still don't think the computer chips is going to work. I think we need a different architecture. I think electrons is not going to work. Um, or we just are, you know, throw all the world's resources into building the biggest supercomputer ever. Um, that's <laughs> Amazon warehouse size full of GPUs and, and turn it on. <laughs> I mean, maybe, um, but I think it's, I think we're going to look back, you know, in generations from now in, in this conversation, I, I don't know if people are interested enough to listen to me talk, but we're going to look back on these type of things and laugh and, and say like, it's as if cavemen were trying to explain an atomic bomb. <laughs> Go boom. Love it. Covered a lot of ground in terms of hardware, switching gears to software. And I've, I've heard you, John, talk about, for example, Falcon 40B. I've kind of taken an interest, for example, in 30B Lazarus. What are some of your, what are some of your favorite models? My favorite model is the next one. So I, uh, I don't mean to be cheap. <laughs> nice. um, Love it. But so like, I feel like my life is a series of happy accidents. And one of the, the most definitive ones um, is learning Linux. I learned Linux very young as a kid. Um, you know, it's a, I didn't have any money as a kid and I wanted to, I wanted the computer. I wanted to play Unreal Engine. Uh, so I would just hack a bunch of things together and make it work with Linux. And, you know, it wouldn't load up Windows. I got to work on Linux. And what that really did to me is opened me up to the world of open source. And when I was growing up, up until rather recently, that meant frustrating pain, a frustrating amount of pain. 
to get anything to work uh, and to stitch things together. But once you got it to work, it would often work way better than anything out there. So I, when I say I like, I want the next one is because there's such a rapid advancement in the open source world for models right now. It's so hard to keep up. Um, I am not keeping up with every model that comes out. I'm keeping up with how they're building the models and what they're training it on, how they're fine tuning it. I think Mosaic MLs, which just got acquired by the way, by Databricks for like 1.1 billion, I think it was like 21 million per employee. That's what it came yeah. out to be. I really liked what they did with, I think it was like Dolly was the model. Um, and they crowdsourced from inside their company to train it on the information in order to, to have uh, the data to, to build the LLM. I think that's amazing. I think that that type of, of thinking is what it, it needs to happen. And I would love to see a giant insurance or a confederation of insurance companies do that same thing. I think that would be amazing. Um, so I think Falcon is, is probably the most promising right now. Uh, I think Mosaic is probably going to be continuously a kind of a dark horse who's in there. Um, what's the one that's out of uh, Quebec that came out a little while ago? Um, Red Pajama. Is it Guan Red Guanico 65B? No, it was uh, Red Pajama. That's the one I was thinking Red of. Pajama. Oh, right. Yeah, I think right. there's going to be a couple iterations of that that'll be really cool. Um, so I, I think that the space is just going to continuously evolve. I think Claude, which is kind of under the radar... Um, I don't really know exactly why someone's told me off the record what they think and has to do with investments and who's the investor, but I think Claude is a dark horse. I like Claude quite a bit. I probably use Claude day in and day out more than I do anything else. And it's wow. because they built the Slack integration. And so it's kind of easy just to like flip over there, ask Claude for something quickly. I think it does pretty well. Like I, like you, I spend a lot of time looking at, you know, the other stuff that's emerging. I think Claude's pretty pretty baked for something that's so generally available. Yeah, I think it's going to just keep getting better. They were ahead of the game. They just waited. They're still waiting to, to come out in force. I think they're going to be a big disruption. But yeah, I think the open source, I mean, honestly, I would just keep up on that leaderboard like you were just describing because yeah. I mean, for a while there, it was like every week I could, I was like spinning out and losing hours at work every day, being reading all these papers, being like, oh my God, what is this? How is this doing? I mean, test it out on my computer. How do I, how do I get this to go? What's the, you know, the totally. parameters? Um, it's going to be amazing. I, I, I go back, to, I know Fred, we mentioned this when we were preparing for this, the Google memo, I would, I would you know, the leaked Google memo, I would really encourage yeah. anyone to check that out because I think that it's exactly on point, which, you know, to, to kind of sum it up in a second, it's, they're saying there is no competitive mode for companies if it's open AI or Google, that open source totally. is only a few weeks to maybe a month behind whatever they could produce. Um, and the pace of it is just going to get better and better. And the reason that is just everyone's sharing what they did which is amazing. Yep. And it's the, the field is going to advance, I think, quite fast. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I'm going to put that memo in the show notes as well. I'm curious, like, you know, to take all of that and knowing that the technology is moving so fast and we all advise companies on these types of questions, but assuming you're a company that's not building AI, assuming you're a company that wants to take advantage of all of these advancements, where do you get started? Like, how do you stop the analysis paralysis and mm. say, all right, here, you know, here's the technology, here's the stack, here's the model, here's the business problem and generate some ROI. Like where, where do you tell people to start? Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Uh, first place to start is don't build AI. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, the first rule of AI is don't build AI. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, I think it's one of those things where, you know, it's very easy to, to, to kind of fall into a trap of thinking you can just hire a bunch of data scientists to make it happen. I think the big thing is 
um, it's really hard to know if who you're hiring is what you need. So that's the, the first trap not to get, you know, fall into. And if, if you do want to hire a data scientist, which I think you should, make sure first that you have the data in order and you have someone that you can trust if it's an agency or, or something that can help you understand who to hire, right? Um, but the first thing, if you want to get started with AI, I would say it's it go about it in two ways. So I, I wrote an article for my blog uh, a couple of years ago about uh, something about like your path to machine learning or, or whatnot. And I think all the principles that are in there are still the same, um, which I'll get into. But I would say also concurrently is to learn learn what other people are doing with it. So like kind of what we're talking about here with insurance or, or whatnot, I would say get very well versed in how other people in other industries, not even just in your industry, I would say the best analogs are going to come from other industries of how people are using it, right? So generative AI is big. Marketing is using it a lot. There's a lot of people yeah. in marketing that are, are using it. And I think it's very interesting. Um, I think you know, a lot of people in research are using it and they're saying, hey, I'm going to give you a bunch of information, summarize this or give it to me in a different way or transcribe it for a different audience. Um, I think that is really interesting. And getting an understanding of how other people are using it is going to give you a better sense of the limitations of it. Any resources that you'd recommend in particular where companies can look like where where are you seeing some of the best ideas being shared? LinkedIn, actually. I'm not one for social media, but LinkedIn is uh, doing, there's a lot of people that are posting what they're doing on LinkedIn. And I would say that's good. Like check out the hashtags and start following people in there. Medium is also a really good uh, place to get uh, information about this. And also just just searching. Like I like Brave Search. I'm not a big fan of Google. Uh, so search that brave.com. Uh, you can go there and, and search and or Google and see what other people are doing and uh, how they're going about it, I, I think is is interesting. Now, when it comes to getting your organization ready for it, that's that's a little, it's a bigger shift that most organizations don't want to do. Um, and what that is and what, and what I detail uh, in that blog post is you need to get your data in order and you need to get your processes in order and you need to understand how the, what is not in data and what is not, you know, what, the inefficiencies in your processes. So. Do you have an easy way that you can query your data? You know, do you have a data lake? Do you have an ability to say, I want to know how many orders I had of this? I want to know how long it took me to go from this, how long it takes, tends to take to go from this to that. Can you do any of that, right? So the first thing you need is you need service-oriented architecture. You need to be able to query your data. You need to be able to build APIs on top of your data to get data out. You need to be able to easily put up either a microservice or another monolith that processes data in ways that you need to see it. You also need to be able to see your data, you know, be able to, to understand what's going on, which ultimately tends to mean uh, you need somebody who owns the data for specific parts of the organization or the interchange between them. I've consulted a lot of companies, a lot of very big multi-billion dollar companies. The mm -hmm. ones I've seen this do the best have people that are not in the business unit and not in IT but their whole job is to go between those two business units and they just either own the data or the applications or both tends to be both that are in that space. So they can say, Hey, this other part of the org wants some of the data that we have. How can we get it to them? And figuring out a way that fits with your architecture. Like I've worked with companies that are still on mainframes. They still have data in mainframes. Well, that's fine. That's actually might make sense for you. Mainframe is not going anywhere for a while. It's not, it's too expensive to take it off. Of yeah. it. It, 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 you start unraveling it and you start seeing all these security problems and it, it just it tends to be a cluster. So instead, how can I get that data off of a mainframe into a way that's easily ingestible, easily transformable? So that's the first thing to do is you need your data in place. And what I would say 
is if you're in an industry that has either a lot of complexity, a lot of interchange, is dependent on other parts of the market, or has a lot of regulation, you are probably behind, probably to an existential point if you're not already doing that. And the reason I say that is like the lemonades of the world are coming and they don't have any of the legacy problems. They're building this all from scratch from the ground up mm-hmm. to be able to have access to their, you know, their data layer very quickly. Um, so if you're not there, focus on your architecture, focus on your data, because the thing is, is the waves of AI are going to keep coming. And right now it's LLM, right now it's generative. If you're using it and there's not use cases that are just falling out and getting you excited, try not to fret too much but try to get your data in place because there's going to be another iteration of AI that's going to come next that might make sense and you're not going to want to miss it. And you're not going to want to be out there figuring out ways that it can improve whatever it is that your, your processes are. I think frequently what happens is when I've talked to clients, they're not necessarily less excited about AI. They're less excited about their level of preparedness and where their data is and how they can take advantage of something. To your point, it's really taking and looking at things and making decisions at speed. If the data that you're relying on to make decisions at speed is bad, you're just making more bad decisions faster. And that's that's not great for anybody. Uh, you know, along those lines, and I'm not thinking so much like Skynet disaster, right? <laughs> I mean, we, we've all seen, you know, the open letters and we need to stop and whatever. I'm thinking more like brass tacks inside a company. What are some common misconceptions, myths you think and in, in, in come across about AI and, and how do you address them with those stakeholders? The biggest one I see most often is one I also see in analog and web three, which is blockchain fixes this. AI <laughs> fixes this. Everything can be fixed with AI. You know, our economy is going to be so much better with AI. Everything is going to be, you know, fixed and better. It's, it's, it's just, it just makes things more complex. It's, it, it does simplify some things. It definitely will be orders of magnitude of improvement and efficiencies in, in areas. But I think the first thing is don't make the assumption that everything is going to get better because you just did AI with it, right? Like that's the, the everything's a, a nail if you're holding a hammer, right? Um, that's the biggest myth. I think that's the biggest one that, that folks probably need to, to circumvent. Um, it's not going to fix everything. It will improve things. It can definitely give way more efficiencies. Uh, the other one is that it can replace employees. I think that that's most likely not going to happen, at least not with this wave. I mean, unless it's super repetitive things, but I mean, even AI, like getting the data, it requires massive amounts of, of, you know, doing things by hand which in in many times is not being very ethically paid for. Uh, So, I mean, even that generation isn't, you know, the remedial tasks isn't getting taken away necessarily. So instead of looking at replacing jobs, cutting, you know, whole parts of the org, or thinking that you can look at how you can improve both the work quality, the work happiness of your employees and their efficiency, because that's really the place that I think you can get the most out of it. Um, You know, I worked for, some really large companies in in energy and utilities. And one of the things that was fascinating to me is they said when they lose an employee that's been there for five years, they lose 10 years of knowledge. And the reason what they meant by that is it takes five years for them to be able to understand the industry and the organization to navigate it. But then that means it's going to take five years for the person that replaces them. So they've actually lost 10 years of knowledge. Um, So I would encourage people instead of trying to think of how can AI do people's jobs, how can it augment them to do a better job um, and improve them? And then in the same way, you, you improve worker retention, you work your happiness, 
Um, and hopefully some of that efficiency comes back to, to wages and whatnot, but that's a, a totally other topic. Um, but I think that's one that's also going to be a bit complicated. John, how do you see AI evolving over the next three to five years? What impacts will it have on business and economy? That's kind of the question everyone's asking, right? It's hard to say. Uh, I say as far as businesses, I think businesses that even like going back to the, the question before of, you know, having a data layer and whatnot, I think businesses that are well suited for digital and have already gone through a digital transformation um, and are kind of poised for that world are going to do well. And they'll probably adapt very well to um, AI. I think the economy writ large is going to be a highly complex one and it's going to be littered with black swan moments over the next five years. Um, I think, you know, I mean, the war in Ukraine isn't a great example. How did that ripple mm -hmm. through and start changing that? I mean, Silicon Valley Bank, you know, failed, which just really, honestly, in my opinion, all that showed is tech was overcapitalized and everyone was running to it as a safe haven for money. Didn't really make much sense. Um, I mean, baby boomers just aged out of the workforce on average. That money that they took out for retirement is not coming back. That's another siphoning of capital that's going to change which means these bets that people are going to make are going to be less risky, more unsure things, and the failures are going to be bigger in the short term, right? So what I, that really means to me is writ large in the economy, the companies that are most agile are going to be thriving the best. And I think the same goes with AI. Um, you know, I, I've worked in very large insurance companies doing digital transformations there for multiple years and got nothing done. I see those folks as, as, as essentially the extinction event is already here for them. It just hasn't hit yet, right? Like the, the asteroid has already hit, but the black cloud hasn't come over there, part of the continent, <laughs> you know? Um, and if you're able to move quickly, you know, uh, and have a workforce that can move quickly and you foster creativity in your workforce and you give people individual, you know, agency and autonomy, um, you know, I... I studied uh, military a lot, mostly because you know, my dad was in the army a lot in the 80s. He was in uh, mm -hmm. Berlin a lot during that time. And one of the things he said that was the difference between American military and the Soviet military was that Americans gave the orders all the way down to the squad level. So everyone in the five person squad knew what their mission was and knew what they were supposed to do. The Soviets only gave the lieutenants and the, the captains, sometimes only the, the full bird colonels, the actual orders, which means they go out, everything's chaos. They don't know what to do, right? So I would say that analogy is completely apt for a war scenario or a completely chaotic economy. Everyone in your organization down to the five-person scrum team should have an understanding of what your strategy is. Um, you know, Nikon, when they were going after, uh, was it Fujitsu? I think it was Fujitsu when they were going after Canon. They said, we want to be the number one ca uh, camera company in the world. And they and everything that they everything that your decisions that you make is that we want to be the number one, which was insane. They were like you know less than two hundred employee person going after one of the largest right. companies in the world. If not, I think they might have been the largest um, in the world. But what it did is it organized everyone's thoughts, everyone's daily tasks, everyone's quarterly reviews was based on are you doing something that's it's getting us to our goal. So I think having a long term strategy that's pithy, short, easy to understand. It's not going to be a game of telephone as far as what my strategy is at the top versus down at the line. Everyone is in it. Everyone is encouraged to do what you think is the best in that you know, situation. Um, like me, myself, I tend to run fairly large teams for products, right? So like my team I've run has been 50 people. 
right now I think it's around 20. Mm-hmm. I don't have time to meet with everybody. You know, like there's a front end lead that she does an amazing right. job, but I don't meet with her very often anymore. But she knows what our, our goal is because that's been disseminated through and we, we've worked through the strategy of the exec level all the way down. What are we working on? How are we trying to get there? What are we trying to achieve? And then the decisions she makes is, is completely autonomous. And like I had a meeting with her yesterday. She just said, hey, this is what I'm working on. Does this make sense? All I said was, yeah, it's perfect. Um, and it's not because I'm so good at what I do. It's mostly just we're all on the same page. We know where we're marching and the culture that's been fostered is one of make decisions on your own and, and execute and know where we're going and, and kind of adapt. Um, so I think AI and the economy is going to disrupt things and it's going to be a push and pull. I think, you know, the, the overall global economic situation in the couple, next couple of years is going to be turbulent. Um, so for both of those, it's agility, creativity, um, and speed to change. I'm really appreciating your response. I don't want to oversimplify because so many get it wrong, but what I'm hearing is just stay anchored to fundamentals. Totally makes a lot of sense. I, no pun intended. I want to continue to, you know, get some predictions from you, test your hella swag as it (laughs) So if you had to guess, what will be the most impactful or surprising way AI is used five or 10 years from now? Impactful or surprising? I think having people have their own little AIs is probably going to be the most surprising and impactful. Like a little you know, baby AGI kind of thing mm-hmm. of, hey, tell me everything that's going on in my finances. Cool. Go cancel that LA Fitness membership that I can't seem to be able to cancel. True story. It took me forever. Um, gym, gym cancellations are the worst. It was $10 a month that was just like snuck away on my Amex. And I was, and it somehow <laughs> that, that is the business model. You realize it, right? Oh, that 100%. is the business model. <laughs> yeah. 100%. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think things like that, I think people having their own little deployable model that'll do any number of things, automating their, their, the rooms in their house for the air conditioning, um, being able to search for photos that they're looking for, compile things. Just essentially their own little uh, Alfred, right? Like Batman, their own little Alfred, who's just going to always come in at the last second and and pull you out of a burning building, so to speak. Yeah, I think you're spot on with that. I think that's much sooner than five to ten years from now. And I've been trying to think about how that's going to change fundamentally how marketing works. Like if I've taken, you know, my AI, my personal Fred AI, and trained it on my preferences – and then there's a marketplace out there trying to sell me. They really need to start selling my AI. And how is that fundamentally going to change, like marketing messaging? How is that going to change, you know, how things are listed, you know, et cetera? I, I, I've been spending a fair amount of time because I think that's for early adopters, like a year off. And I think mainstream is like three years before people are running their own AIs. Yeah, I can see that. I worry about how it's going to affect our, our culture and our interchange with each other or even like our preferences, you know, like. Totally. I think even now marketing has kind of driven us. The the example I use is is rock climbing actually, and it's like somebody gets into rock climbing and it's really because they were just at you know advertised enough things because their segmentation <laughs> matched with rock climbing. They're finally like, oh shit, I'll give this a try. Oh, there's a twenty dollar Groupon class down the street. Sure, I'll I'll try that. Um, and it starts to beg the question: Did you get into it, or were you suggested your way into it? Um, and I worry that that about, probably explains uh, pickleball too. Oh, I can see that. Yeah. You look pregnant with thought, Dane. Do you feel that AI would ever get to a place, like you were talking about an assistant, but AI gets to a place where it can help us change our behaviors? Like maybe somebody that has, you know, anger management issues or 
isn't patient enough or lacks empathy. Would Dane, AI just call me out. Just like... call me out, Dane. Just call me out. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I do think so. I worry about that, though. But I do think so. There's uh, a neuroscientist that I, I did some very rudimentary consulting for who has uh, um, this device that, sh- that looks at your brain waves. Um, and he's able to, he just does, you do these little games and the games are meant to, to change your brainwave. Like you're, you're like theta or something like that. I don't remember exactly. I remember going through a bunch of these, these ladder, uh, battery of tests. And it was really fascinating. Um, but I, I think you can add AI to that. And I think it would probably really improve things. I think, you know, Hey, you haven't drink enough water. Um, you should go drink some water or, you know, you haven't exercised enough or, Hey, you're not actually in meditation. You're scrolling. Um, those type of things, I can, I think it definitely could help 100%. I would never allow that in my life. And I think we should fundamentally as a society reject that wholehearted because that really? just means, oh, 100%. I think that that is Why? the path Why? towards destruction. So many reasons. The first one is I'll scare you with security. If you just give every part of your life on your computer, you just gave a very rich target to anyone who wants to adjust or change your behavior. Um, you know, I mean, let's just say that you become president of a company who's about to have a deal with somebody else. Think of inception. Well, now you're a target. Why don't they just tap into your model and alter your behavior to make you a little more agitated that day? And you're not going to know it because you're, this isn't, you're literally giving up your passive thoughts to this to try to improve yourself, which means it could passively alter your thoughts very easily uh, to change your behavior and change you in a different way. You're also giving all of your life to this, this device, right? Like, like I said, like you're not drinking enough water. That means it's watching me on my camera, which it already is, but now it's doing more things with it. Right. I think it could, once again, who's programming it? What are their intentions? I mean, all humans have bias, all humans have issues, all humans have ignorance. That's just what we are. We're, we're fallible beings, um, which I don't think we should run away from. I think we should accept and run towards, um, and try to make us more perfect through technology historically has brought more destruction. I mean, like, think about it. Like, the average commute to work, you know, pre-industrial time was zero. You lived where you worked and people were fairly happy with that, right? Like we, we think of that time as being pretty horrible, but depression, anxiety, um, you know, uh, diseases of excess, they're booming right now. So are we really all that better off because of technology? I'm not exactly sure. Um, I think we have to transcend as a species and rise above the pole that technology puts us into, which is to make things more comfortable, to make us more atrophied. Like think of what I just said with the method of Loki. Like, I only know my wife's phone number. I used to know fifty phone numbers because I had to. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't need to know anyone. I only I only know my childhood phone number. I don't even know what current phone number. Yeah, sometimes actually, actually, I have to. Sometimes I have to look up my own phone number before I give it to somebody. Yeah, I, I get that. I don't know. I'm I'm on the other side of this, and I I totally acknowledge the security implications. Although I don't think that a model of personal AI that is freemium is in any way a good idea. Like if you're going to have your own personal AI, you need to pay for it. You're touching on another subject that's critically important to me, which is transparency. Like one of the things, and, and you know, we are in part a Salesforce podcast. And one of the things we talk about a lot is Salesforce. And one of the things I have, have commented on in the past is that up until now, their models have been very much a black box, right? Like, you know, Einstein next best action. You don't know what, what really went into that recommendation. I think to your to your point, if you're going to have an AI that's giving you recommendations on your mood, on your water consumption, on whatever your objectives are, 
there needs to be a great deal of transparency so you know what's going into that calculation. And that needs to be very front and center. But I think between solving transparency, solving security, maybe, you know, some level of air gap between whatever that AI is running on and kind of the broad open internet, I think we can solve for that stuff. And I think it will fundamentally improve people's outcomes. You know, I, you know, water is one and every debate's like how much water to drink. But I do know that there is a optimum amount of water that I can drink in a day where I don't spend all the time in the bathroom, but I feel better at the end of the day and I don't feel as lethargic. And sometimes I get so busy that I can't like in my conscious mind, maintain that level of water consumption. And would it be helpful to me to get a little, you know, Apple notification that says, hey, you're 20% behind, maybe consider drinking a, a glass of water? Yeah, I'd, I'd find that very helpful. And I think that there's probably more upside than downside. I don't know. I'm not convinced. I think everything that you change becomes more complex. And the more complex it is means the less you can take in and account for. So like, let's just look at this. Like, we were talking earlier about cars, right? Like mm -hmm. I had a 94 Ford Probe GT. I loved the thing, except for the name. There's nothing I don't oh like about God. it. That um, was an awesome car. It was <laughs> actually. Awesome yeah. It was faster Great than the Mustangs of the day, which is which I found a lot of fun, especially when I'm beating people in you know drag racing session. I've been doing it, a car called a Probe. But uh, <laughs> like that car, multiple things broke on it until it was a transmission. I did it all myself. I could not for a second touch my car today. Even if I put the computer diagnostics to it, and it said what I could do, I could not do it. Even if it was fully transparent, there's no way that I would have any ability to understand exactly what's happening, nor would a single expert. It would take multiple experts to be able to explain to me what it's doing and how it's working. I think that analogy also extends to what we're talking about with your own personal you know, AI. I think you could hire people that could tell you to a good degree, but then that means that it's the gap between those who have and have not is gonna be larger. Um, which I would cons be concerned about because the majority of people, especially in the beginning, which is going to have the largest fundamental impacts in society, are not going to have the one that's, they're going to have the freemium one. That's going to change things writ large. Look at social media. That was literally in the memo saying we're going down the brainstem um, to right. alter behavior. I, I wouldn't put that past. And this isn't to say that corporations are terrible. I think it's human nature that we have to get above. Um, and I think human nature is frequently one of we can solve this. It's okay. Let's worry about the consequences later. Instead of saying the more we change, the more complex it gets, the more complex it gets, the more it's going to change and be out of our control. Um, so, I mean, yes, it, I mean, I think nothing is good and nothing is bad. Could it have good things? Totally. It could definitely have benefits. It can definitely solve for some of our anxiety and all of that. But the other example I'll give is iPhones are more secure than Android. I think we all know that, right? But the, that's actually a fallacy because all of the richest people, the most target rich people have iPhones. So what does that mean? The market for hacking iPhones is is richer. Significantly larger. Right, so what happens? Every iPhone, the new version comes out, it gets hacked way faster because of the fact it can't. Like Jeff Bezos is the whole, like his you know texts and all that link, you know, leak coming from a WhatsApp message and all of that, that was on an iPhone. Um, well, and plus Apple, Apple force upgrades everybody to the same version of iOS, whereas Android, you're running you know, I don't even know, 20, 30 different versions across, you know, current smartphones. Uh, thousands of different devices. Right. Yeah. Right. It's, it's exactly. harder. Right. But it's way harder. If, if you're a rich target, all of a sudden that price is on your head. So, um, yeah, I, I hear you. I mean, I think there's great arguments on, on both sides. I think the one thing we can align on is that a, 
a freemium model for a personal AI is a horrible idea. <laughs> and, yes. and, and, you know, I think anything beyond that, uh, you know, time will tell, we'll have to come back on the podcast in a, in a couple, uh, you know, six months, nine months down the road and see how this is, has evolved. Cause I, I think this is, I think this is a very fast moving area. I'm curious, uh, you've, you've mentioned insurance a lot and I don't know if you've worked with a lot of banks, uh, obviously for the podcast, we have a lot of ba- bankers that listen in, do you have any predictions about how AI could impact banking as an industry? Oh my God, yeah, so many. I mean, banking is such an amazing use case for AI or machine learning because it's 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 hard data. You know what I mean? Like dollars are in there, dollars are out, dollars are changing. So I, I've I've done a lot of due diligences for uh, acquisitions, um, mm-hmm. and that I think is a space that AI can come in and say, let's look at this code stack, let's look at their operations. Give me a summary of everything and then the, the points to look deeper in. Um, financial statements, what, where's, where's the money coming in, coming out? Give me some ideas of, of improvements with it. Auditing people, uh, risk analysis, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, company, corporate loans. I think corporate loans is an area that's going to be really rich for this, especially considering the fact that corporate loans is one of the areas of the economy I'm most expecting to implode, mostly because of the the real estate market. There's so many different ways. I mean, uh, even there's been some interesting stuff with GPT in crypto trading and doing pretty well at, you know, if you feed it in this information, being able to spot trades. Um, you know, I, I've actually helped build an algorithm for automated, automated stock trading, um, which is something that's it's only gone more insane since I did that in 2019 totally. or 18. Um, so I, I think that it, if you're not, if you're in banking and you're not considering how to do AI or not, how to do machine learning, you're already behind. Um, because I mean, one of the issues that we had with that when we, when I was building that uh, automated stock trading, I was doing this for just you know an acquaintance of mine who who was a day trader, um, was literally the speed it took to put the orders in because there were so many people renting real estate across the street from from Wall Street where the main servers were because oh, yeah. the speed of the electron. Sending the, the, the closer the closer you could get your your server stack to the server stack where the trades were being executed could make the difference between you know zero and ten million dollars. Yeah, yeah, profitability for sure. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is ultimately what folded that. It wasn't that, but it was it was making too many too many buy orders. Um, but it definitely played a, played a factor in it because it was you know sending the order in versus when it was, and we were in California, and yeah, it was a, it was interesting. John, thanks again. Before we let you go, I just want to maybe leave the audience with one takeaway. What should people, businesses be doing right now, the one thing to prepare for how AI is going to impact their business in the next year? Focus on strategy, focus on data. So if you, that's two things, but maybe maybe your strategy should involve data. Um, Focus on strategy and have that strategy be the same at the top end of your organization at the bottom end of your organization and do more so the top end of your organization has a connection and speaks to the bottom end of your organization bridge that gap right like we, we can talk about like flat working arrangements flat you know uh leadership structures all of that like i'm not going to comment on any of that but if your execs at the top don't have a good understanding of how things are near the bottom end of the the, the value chain essentially in your organization um, you're not going to be able to think as as agile, right? Like you're going to say like, oh, we're going to we're going to react to this thing in the market. We're going to go change this, and then you're going to be like, why is it not happening? You know, like I, I talked with an exec about a year ago, um, mm-hmm. and he was saying, I have I acquire all these companies, we're merging them together, and I keep saying like, this is what I want. Why can't I have it? 
Um, and what I kept saying was, well, how, how much have you been talking to the folks that are ex- executing it? What are they saying? Right. Why are they, why are they saying they can't do it? Is it, are they understanding what you're asking? Um, you know, what's, what's the way that you're saying it? What's, what are they saying back? So I would say if it was one thing, I would say it's focused on strategy of which I would say data should be part of your strategy, um, and have it be something that makes sense for all ends of the organization. Um, I think, you know, one of the, the legacy kind of dot com even before then like the 80s kind of ride of of the economy and increasing worker worker productivity um is the is the management consulting style of of leadership we come in we set a direction it's going to happen it's going to change everything it's amazing um you know we, we have a quarterly earnings that are crazy year you know year after year after year um i don't think that's going to happen as much anymore uh, and i think that having an understanding of how things work across your organization and having something that makes sense, a strategy that makes sense across the organization um, is incredibly important uh, because once again, I think, you know, I, once again, I love your podcast name, you know, disruption, I think is going to be the norm and it's going to be in more ways than just technology disrupting. It's going to be black swan events or things like that are going to become more often and more frequent. Um, so more agile you are, the more that your strategy makes sense, the, the better you're going to be insulated to any type of external shock. I think all that's spot on. One of the ideas that I had in your response was as a follow-up, and, and this could probably take another hour of time here, so we'll have to schedule another guest on another podcast, is just to talk about like organizational design and like the importance of getting everybody rowing in the same direction and how that shifted. Well, John, thanks a lot. This has been a phenomenal conversation. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that want to engage with you afterwards. What's the best way for our audience to get in touch with you? Yeah, uh, I have a website. It's the number 3ct.co. We can put it in the show notes. That'll have my LinkedIn on there, contact information, some some blogs I haven't read on and for, for a few years, but they're still pretty uh, spot on. <laughs> um, that's probably the best way to reach out to me. Um, I'll have a, a podcast I'll be making myself in some, some time in the future, maybe in six months, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, that'll be similar to this, so that'll also be posted on there. So if you reach out to me on there, um, we can connect and, and go from there. That sounds awesome. I'll definitely be putting that in the show notes. I'll be looking forward to that podcast. And maybe if we play our cards, you'll have uh, Dana or I as a guest on that podcast at some point. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Thank you again. I, I love your name. I love what you guys are doing. Dane's one of my favorite people. So thank you, Dane, for, for putting this together and having me on. Uh, and looking forward to, to listening to it, as well as that one on organizational design. Sounds great. Good Have a good day. Thanks. And we're back with Quick Takes. Dane, tell me, what have you been following this week? Hey, Fred. So one of the stories I've been following is about Salesforce XGen 7B. So that's a large language model with longer context support. XGen achieves comparable or better results when compared to Falcon, Llama, Red Pajama, I'm pretty surprised Falcon in particular is getting a lot of attention. It also archives equally strong results from both in text and in code related tasks. And I guess they built it on Google clouds. What have you heard? Yeah. You know, I've heard about the same. I'm very interested in learning more. The kind of the two things that I found interesting about it. One is, I think this is very complementary to Salesforce's strategy of bring your own model that they're using kind of a cross-platform. And and there's no reason why that one of those models 
that you could select wouldn't be one that Salesforce could provide. It, it kind of gives them a best of both worlds. You know, you can you can bring uh, Anthropic, you can bring you know OpenAI, you could bring you know any third-party model one that you develop, or you can buy this one from Salesforce. And I I, I really like you want to dig in more to those metrics and see how they're benchmarking and, and really see what that result is. But the, the other part that I found interesting, and if you remember back one of our first episodes when we talked about the summer release, one of the things I tried to do was to take the release notes and import it into a number of different models, uh, including, you know, ChatGPT, OpenAI, uh, both through the, the API and through the ChatGPT interface. Uh, some other kind of third-party front ends that that scrape PDFs, and I kept running into a token limit issue. You know, you you you, ChatGPT I think limits you right now to four thousand tokens at the the current GPT four, um, and and this Salesforce model is built to support you know about eight thousand and change tokens, and so when I think about a lot of the use cases Salesforce has put forward for uh, generative AI, you know, specifically around like summarizing account information, uh, you know, helping people get a, a complete view of the customer in a, in a quick, easy to read format for larger enterprises, you know, that can easily be hundreds or thousands of interactions that it's trying to summarize at once. So I think that larger token threshold is going to serve Salesforce well. Totally made sense. I mean, especially if you're wanting to look at customer data. I wanted to talk, Dane, about something I've been following the last few days. I know we've talked before on the podcast about what could potentially be the, the Twitter disruptor, who's going to you know, dethrone Twitter. We've talked about Mastodon. We've talked about Blue Sky. Uh, this last week, we had a launch of threads. Uh, you know, the Meta's offering to compete in the, in the Twitter uh, Thunderdome, if you will. It is growing super fast. It crossed uh, 100 million signups within five days, a record that uh, beat ChatGPT, which was the, the prior uh, winner in the 100,000 user signup mark. I uh, wanted to get your thoughts. Have you, have you seen uh, Threads? Have you used it much? Well, it's an interesting story. I am a little bit of a Mark Zuckerberg fan. He is super into jiu-jitsu, and that's definitely my world as well. I definitely wanted to see that Elon Musk Mark Zuckerberg fight. I think that would have been an interesting an interesting thing to watch. Yeah, that would be that would be interesting. I, I don't, you know, no no offense to Elon. I don't think that would go well for him, but <laughs> um I, you know, Zuckerberg's had a hard run at things. He obviously committed heavily to Meta. Um, you know, he was one of the first companies to do layoffs. I remember watching the video where he, you know, he went through that process and boy, he approached it a lot differently than Elon did, right? He was, uh, really teary eyed announcing meta layoffs and, but he's hung in there he's persistent. Um, I think he saw an opportunity here and wow, unbelievable. I mean, amazing results. Yeah, absolutely. It's early out of the gate. I mean, I'm sure that the the signups are due in no small part to the fact that you can basically, as an Instagram user with with one click, have a thread account. So uh, they definitely made the the signup process seamless. They definitely have a built in user base. I don't know if 
Facebook users have the same kind of one-click option. But I think that really helped them get to that 100 million signups. I'll tell you from my perspective, uh, I've been on Blue Sky now for maybe two or three weeks, and I spend maybe 50 minutes a day on it. You know, I'll look at it a couple times a day for five or, or 10 minutes. And, and the, the real issue is there's just not much there. You know, I think partially because they're metering out the invites. I think partially people are figuring out how hard it is to move an audience that you built on one platform to another platform. But, you know, if it sounds like Zuckerberg, Facebook, Meta, whatever they're calling the company today, has cracked the code of we're going to make it super easy for somebody to take an audience they built on Instagram and move it over to this platform. I don't know if you saw that uh, article that showed that Threads seems to be popular even with Twitter employees. I think one of the stories that I'm remotely curious about is why is it that you can one-click sign up from an Instagram account and not from a Facebook account? When you mentioned that, I did just check online. That still is the case today. So I wonder if there's a story behind that. But overall, I, just unbelievable, you know, to see to see this unfolding. I mean, ton of ton of growth. Yeah, I don't know the the technical reasons. I do know, um, as I've played around with the Threads app a little bit, that a lot of the controls and and privacy and that kind of stuff seem to rely on an Instagram backend. I know they're working furiously to to roll out features. I think that you know, if I were to say anything about Threads, like right now, it's not nearly as feature rich as Twitter is, um, and so that that might be part of it. I don't know what the ultimate end game is. Uh, I'll be honest, like I struggle a little bit to understand why I would need both an Instagram and a Threads. But also, I'll admit that for the last, you know, three or five years, I have not been the heaviest Twitter user. I mean, I I still have an account, uh, but I don't really tweet that often. Maybe I just don't understand the, the granularity between the two. But I think having that overlapping audience to have to go to two different platforms might end up long term being an issue. I don't know if it would have been a better move to just build some of the Twitter-esque features into Instagram directly. Yeah, really good points, actually. I don't know that I appreciate, you know, Twitter enough to distinguish either. Yeah, so, well, switching gears, novel use of AI, there's a platform called FreeThink, and so our company called FreeThink, and they're experimenting with AI technology to predict hit songs using heartbeat. So there's a couple of quotes that I'm just grabbing online. Paul Zak, director of the Center for Neuroeconomics Studies at Claremont Graduate University, discovered that subtle changes at heartbeats can predict brain activity associated with attention and emotional resonance. So there's a quote here. Um, you know, my lab previously identified what appears to be the brain's valuation system for social and emotional experiences. He's calling that immersion. And so by applying some of these, you know, concepts, uh, in particular using neurophysiologic data, they're able to almost perfectly identify what will become hit songs or what have become hit songs 
which is pretty cool. I dug into neurophysiologic data a bit. I'm curious about other use case possibilities as well. Fred, what's your what's your take on this? I think it's super interesting. I mean, first and foremost, I just love hearing stories about non-traditional uses of AI, you know, people that are are looking at this technology and finding novel problems to crack. So that was the the first takeaway that I had when you shared the article. Um, I love the idea of using neuropsychologic data. Uh, I mean, I think that, you know, just like in our conversation earlier with John, like we have to be sensitive to to privacy and security and 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 transparency and permissiveness. But I think there's a lot of things both that could benefit individuals um, as well as, you know, again, with the right, you know, permissions in place, uh, benefit marketing as well. You know, that same technology that can look at uh, you know, your your brain patterns and tie it to a hit song could also tie it to a hit product or it could help with A-B testing. You know, what is what is really going to resonate and kind of light a fire under people to take action? So I think there's a lot of, of use cases for the, for the data that could be uh, interesting. I, I am curious. I think obviously they, you know, this, this is a bit of a, a pattern fit exercise, right? I think the way that the experiment worked is they took, you know, existing known hit songs and and flops and played them to people and, you know, measured those brain waves and kind of like fit the pattern. Um, I wonder how, you know, predictive it is. I'm sure they they did, you know, a, a, a test where they had like some training data and then like some test data. But I kind of wonder like, moving forward, you know, how does that, how does that, you know, how does that pattern fit continue to, to predict moving forward? I'm also kind of curious, you know, I didn't see this in, in the article, but what did they potentially use? Was it primarily, you know, pop music, rock, you know, does it extrapolate out to country music, to classical, to, you know, international music, you know, how, how is it, um, you know, that particular model going to work across different genres and different cultures? But I love the novel use case, and I think that to go back and reference the conversation we had with John, you know, thinking about for your business, you know, yes, there's the kind of traditional problem set to crack, but what are novel data sources and what are novel problems that you could potentially use this technology to, to gain a competitive advantage? And, and I, I just love the story. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's also interesting to think about like how how like might we measure neurophysiologic data with like an Apple Watch, right? So yeah, I think these use case possibilities are interesting. Totally. I mean, I I love the idea. You know, I, I'm a, I'm an Apple Watch proponent. I'm kind of come down on the opposite side of of John on this privacy stuff. Like, I'm an early adopter in a lot of these bio measure and you know track your data and use your data for self improvement stuff. And and I get the the safety concerns, but with with all kinds of different devices out there, you know, how could we get more of this data and leverage it for you know our own you know personal improvement? So I I love. I love the trend and I definitely want to keep an eye on it. One last thing I wanted to bring up, uh, we're recording this Wednesday morning ahead of tomorrow, Thursday's release of the podcast. Yesterday morning, Salesforce announced its first price increase in seven years. Uh, Dane, I'm sure you saw the story as well. What's your take? 
going to be interesting to see the story unfold. I know one of the things that Salesforce is looking at right now is sales growth. And so how will existing customers, prospect customers react to the higher price? But it's been a while and maybe they've been, you know, maybe this is long overdue. So again, I'm, I'm going to be tracking this story. It is interesting. I'm definitely going to track the story as well. I mean, I think that uh, it, it's a roughly a 9% increase across its, its core products. Um, you know, seven years is a long time. Uh, I was looking at some, some market research shows that most SaaS companies uh, raise their prices by 5 to 7% a year. Frequently, that's built, you know, directly to the contract. Um, so I think seven years, you know, potentially is time, quote unquote, for a price increase. I think that arguably, and, and we've talked about this before, you know, Salesforce uh, releases a lot of features, uh, you know, in the releases and what you get in those core products. And so you're kind of getting more for your money, uh, you know, release over release. But in a lot of ways, there there have been price increases for Salesforce, you know, every every year. In, in the fact that they're releasing new product features that frequently have, you know, secondary license types. And so you're not necessarily getting everything that Salesforce has to offer with that one, with that one piece. So uh, I think it will be interesting. I think, you know, August is, a, is an interesting time to, to put this in place. It's right ahead of Dreamforce. It's moving into, you know, Salesforce's fourth quarter, you know, where they have a, a disproportionate amount of, of renewals. So it'll be interesting to see how those conversations go with with companies and and really how Salesforce is going to continue to sell the value of the platform, you know, in the face of of the price increase. Uh, but I I will say my money and and I think the market reacted the same way is on Salesforce making that case. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, thanks, Dane. Once again, a tremendous episode. Uh, looking forward to talking again. Have a great day, friend. You too. Well, everyone, we hope you enjoyed Episode 7 of Banking on Disruption. Don't forget, you can find show notes and a full transcript of the show on our website, bankingondisruption.com. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. New episodes drop every other Thursday, so we'll see you in two weeks. And in the meantime, don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram at at bankingondisruption. Until next time... This is Fred Cadena wishing you success in your digital pursuits.